2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food world icon, Alice Waters. In today's episode, we'll talk to Alice about how she thinks radically about food, why edible schoolyards are key to our survival, and we'll hear Alice's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's discovery of how much the French valued food launched her on a lifelong mission to share those values in America. This embrace led Julia to become, somewhat accidentally, a food world pioneer. She didn't set out to be influential, but her innate enthusiasm made her a natural advocate. That advocacy started a revolution, because at the time in the early 1960s, what Julia was advocating went entirely against the grain, against what was heralded as progress. Julia had the temerity to say, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense to me. Julia saw both what was to be lost, but also potential to do things differently and to appreciate what was being overlooked in America's rich natural bounty. Someone who closely shares Julia's values is fellow food world icon, Alice Waters. Alice also had a similar epiphany in France, a bit more than a decade after Julia, returning to the U.S. wanting to replicate the French appreciation for good food. A key difference between Julia and Alice is the generations they represent. Some 30-plus years younger than Julia, Alice came of age after World War II, when the radical questioning of society's hierarchy had become more common, protests were rampant, and experimentation was more and more the norm. It was also when Julia was on PBS. Unlike Julia, Alice's influence is significantly place-based. Alice opened the legendary Chez Panisse restaurant in Berkeley, the year I was actually born there, 1971, in Berkeley, not the restaurant. Chez Benisse, which has been open for more than 50 years, which you will note in and of itself is an incredible feat for any restaurant, became for Alice and the nation more than a restaurant. It represents to this day that ingredients matter as much as cooking skills, and those ingredients are to be nurtured, cherished, and celebrated for not only taste and pleasure, but to understand the value of where food comes from, that is to say, from farmers and from the earth. This idea is widely accepted today, but in 1971, it was radical. Remember, the foundation of French cooking is actually about masking poor ingredients, not really to showcase them, that came later. Most often referred to as the founder of the farm to table movement, well, before it became kind of a cliche, and also I'll call it one of the OGs of California cuisine, a style of cooking which showcases the freshest ingredients in California's food producers, Alice, for those who don't know her, which I don't know how many that will be, is a chef, author, restaurateur, and a food activist. She founded the Edible Schoolyard Project in 1995. Edible Schoolyards is a nonprofit dedicated to transforming public education through incorporating organic gardens into schools while teaching nourishment, stewardship, and community to teachers and students alike through hands-on experience while addressing climate change, public health, and social inequality in the process. Yep, gardening can do all of that. There are now more than 6,000 edible schoolyards around the world. Alice was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama in 2015 and received the inaugural Carver Carson Award for American Innovation in Environmental Protection and Agriculture from our friends at the Henry Ford in 2021. The author of 16 books, Alice recently created an Institute for Regenerative Agriculture and Edible Education at UC Davis's Aggie Square campus in Sacramento to bring together agriculture leaders and innovators to address climate change and public health with a focus on transforming the procurement of food for schools. She joins us today to talk about her radical thinking and give us a scorecard on our progress and the challenges that remain. Welcome to the podcast, Alice.
3: Thank you so much. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs>
1: I, yeah, I know, yeah. Your life is flashing before your eyes. So I, I wanted to start with that because it it's kind of a different approach. Like I feel like in some ways... Julia's ethos and yours are very well aligned, but then the approach and and the way that you've tackled it is quite different. And like I spoke to, it might be partly generational too. It's also a moment in time, but I wanted to just start with kind of like what quote unquote radical thoughts about food are on your mind as we record today.
3: (laughs) Well, certainly to know that the tastiest food has to come to you locally. <laughs> and so it is my thought that if we purchased food for the public school system from local organic regenerative farms, we could address climate at the same time, we could address health and taste. So it just feels like it's the only delicious solution to climate change.
1: And I feel like when you put it that way, it's a simple thought, but I I would say where it gets complex, right, is how our nation's food is grown and produced as a whole, and then how schools uh, acquire it, right? Those are the the biggest obstacles, and they're pretty big ones, right?
3: Yeah. obstacles, but we're at a crisis point and we really have to address climate. And I discovered through the Edible Schoolyard Project that students absolutely become engaged with food when they learn how to cook it in a kitchen classroom or they learn how to grow it in the garden classroom. They are empowered in a way that is surprising. And I guess what convinces me that this is the way to reach people, in that same um, way that Julia did, With her television, she was so excited about cooking and the taste of it and what she had learned in France. And of course, she lived in France when it was a real slow food nation, if you will. All the food that people ate was from the local region. In fact, when I lived in Paris, which was much later than Julia back in 1965, I don't even think you had olive oil in Paris because it was about butter in the <laughs> north of France. And if you wanted olive oil, you ate in the south of France. And so all the food was grown without herbicides or pesticides. It was way before olive that. And uh, it's, I'm sure why I fell in love with food like to eat it, because it really awakened your taste. And it was not only about taste, it was about sitting at the table in a restaurant and feeling the excitement of people eating together. And. That made a very big impression on me. So when I got back from France, I wanted to eat like the French and live like the French. And I maybe if I start a restaurant, it'll happen. (laughs) And I guess it did.
1: So I love that you brought up taste because I also lived in Europe as a young person and, um, even though I was brought up in the great plains I had never tasted food In in my case it was actually in italy um but it has a as you know a similar ethos to france or at least what france did is do, is that do you feel like that's your secret weapon that once you expose particularly young people and children to taste it is this thing that then once you've tasted really good food it you're going to demand it over over time
3: i do believe that I believe do, um, and it's why whenever I'm talking to people, I always want to bring a basket of perfect fruit to the table, not only for the beauty of the centerpiece, but because I know that if they, uh, you know, have a bite, that it just sort of wakes them up. In a way that they want another button. (laughs) And then they want to know where I got it. (laughs) And it helps people in a way to open their senses. And when I was a Montessori teacher, I understood that it's very important to have your senses awaken, because those are pathways into our minds. So when we taste and smell and listen carefully and look very closely, we are really bringing information that's very important to our understanding of the world through the senses.
1: It fascinates me because I'm actually a product of Montessori education. Um, in <laughs> starting in the Bay Area, and although we moved to Midwest when I was very small, but I continued to go to Montessori school. And I'll tell you, one of my most vivid memories of Montessori school. There are two. One is, and I don't know if this is accurate or what they had, but it's like they had a carcass of a cow and they were showing us about that. And I, it might have been something else, but that's my memory. And then we also ate chocolate ants at one point. And I've never, <laughs> ever forgotten those experiences. And I think that I had forgotten that you had that Montessori connection. Do you want to actually explain maybe a little bit of the connection between, for those who don't know what Montessori is and, and, and sort of I mean, you were explaining it a bit about using your senses, but it's a bit bigger than that.
3: Yes, it is. Uh, Well, she was working in Italy as a doctor um, at the turn of the uh, last century, the beginning, and the 1880s, actually. And uh, she wanted to understand why children who were living in poverty and hunger could not learn the way other children did. And so she was working in Naples in Italy and she was um, understanding what was going on in India particularly. And she created this pedagogy that was aimed at helping them learn. So she talked about the senses being our pathways into our minds, but she also really talked about learning by doing it. And that made a huge impression on me because when I was taking those classes in London, to learn the pedagogy, we had to go out into Hampstead Heath and pick leaves and bring them back and trace the shape of the leaf in our notebooks. And then we had to learn calligraphy to write the name of that leaf. Well, let me tell you, to this day, I know all the trees in half step. <laughs> and so i it really worked for me. I never could learn math like other kids, but to learn it by holding blocks and, and using your hands and these beautiful, um, uh, the equipment that she designed for learning was so beautiful and so engaging that I felt like any child would be pleased to be in that classroom. And I've always run the restaurant in that way. I uh, thought about the aroma of the restaurant. I wanted it to always smell good. So if it didn't, I would burn rosemary and walk around (laughs) in the kitchen and the dining room so that it smelled like the south of France. And I always wanted it to look beautiful and I cared about the seasonal flowers. And I really focused uh, on the food, the beautiful seasonal food. And it was very important to me. When I found the farmers that were right close to Japanese. And I would buy whatever they said was great at that moment in time. And I realized that seasonality, yes. with seasonality, comes flavor. And it's the first realization that I have was was I need to buy local food, and when it's out of season, it's gone until next year. <laughs> and that is what I think has kept people coming to Chevanies for these fifty-two years. Is that we're always looking for what tastes fantastic and what is organically grown. And I say regeneratively, organically, because that is the food that it's pulling down the carbon up there and putting it down in the ground where it belongs.
1: I love that full circle explanation. So I wanted to ask you because obviously you you had this training as an educator, and then you changed gears and became a chef and restaurateur. And then they've kind of converged again. But do you remember, you described your sort of epiphany in terms of applying the senses to consuming food and, and, and what food should be valued in the restaurant. When did you return or was there an aha moment or was it very gradual where you said, OK, I'm accomplishing my mission at Chez Panisse, but I'm worried about what's going on in schools and with children and kind of return to what you'd originally been studying with Montessori?
3: Well, I knew that it was really, really important for children. And having had my own child 40 years ago, I, you know, planted the garden in my backyard for her pleasure and her education of the senses. I wanted her to fall in love with food the way I had. And so I did apply Montessori's pedagogy. And of course it worked like a charm. <laughs> <laughs> and when I came to it came to the moment that she was going to go to school, I investigated the various schools. And I was shocked to find that um, the schools in California were very neglected in the sense that, that there wasn't money enough for the schools to take care of the number of students and teachers were, were not paid enough. And it made me terribly sad to see the public school system um, that I had always attended as a child growing up, um, be so neglected, and I, I didn't send Fanny to the public school. I decided to have her go to a bilingual French English school in Berkeley because I knew that that could connect her to that culture. And of course it did. But when a principal of Martin Luther King Junior Middle School just called me out of the blue 28 years ago, and he said to me, I wonder if you might come over and beautify my school. And I, I couldn't resist that <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> and I said, of course. And I went over to the school that I had gone by many times and felt, oh, so, so sad for the way that it looked neglected in terms of the property and all of that. I thought maybe the school was abandoned. But it turned out there were a thousand middle school students that spoke 22 different languages at home. And right then and there, when I saw this big piece of land, because the school had been around since the 20s and it had grown in size, it was meant to be a school for 500. But there were so many children that they put up portable buildings and, and it had changed entirely. But the principal, Mr. Smith, said to me, whatever you think we should do, I would like to do. And, of course, that just... <laughs> <Look>. <laughs> and I looked over it was abandoned area, whole huge, it looked like, uh, uh, you know, a vacant lot that was, you know, full of garbage from the neighborhood, and people just didn't pay any attention, and I said, oh my God, it's a garden, it's a garden, it's a beautiful garden, an acre of land, and then I went into one of the portable buildings, And I said, Neil Smith, the principal, this could be a great kitchen classroom. Not for teaching cooking, per se, but for teaching all the academic subjects. I thought, why, we could teach a geography class, and we could be cooking the food of the Middle East, and really using all of our senses and i see that garden classroom as being a place not only for science and and for you know biology but it could be a place to study, you know uh the environment and music or art and so i also said to Neil out on the blacktop we could build a dining room so that we could feed all the students seated and that we could make food from farms that that I knew about from around the whole Bay Area, organic farms, and they could all sit and eat together. (laughs) And the principal said, Well, I'll get back to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And now, yeah, wow. And the rest is history. I love
0: that. He
3: got back six months and he said, I'm ready to go all the way. And I said, Neil, it's all the way or nothing. And he said, Alice, it's all the way. I want to see. And when we built that idea and even the cafeteria, which is so beautiful, sadly, It was taken over by the city, and and the Cisco trucks brought in the food. But I still have hope that real food could be served one day in that cafeteria. But it's amazing what it did for these students, because we have an academy every year, and people come from around the world. To learn, and they take it back home. And that is how we have a network of 6,200 schools around the world that believe in the human values that it's teaching. Biodiversity, it's teaching about organic food, it's teaching about gathering at the table, community. It's teaching about nourishment in a deep way. And these students really understand it. And I go there just to be inspired again by what can happen when we engage the students with a program That really is reaching them through their senses. They love it.
1: That's so lovely. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with much more from Alice Waters. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're
1: talking to food world icon and food world revolutionary, Alice Waters. So Alice, that was so such a beautiful explanation of the genesis of edible schoolyards. And then sort of fast-forwarding to today... But I was also curious to ask you if in a, in a bittersweet way, your goal is to actually make edible schoolyards obsolete. And that is to say that it's is its definition of success in your mind that this kind of hands on food education is integrated into all public education in the U.S. and around the world, rather than like a special program that schools elect to participate in.
3: Absolutely. (laughs) That is my vision because I feel like we industrialized our schools like we industrialized our farms. It's sort of one size fits all. And we are not really engaging the students in a way that's meaningful and empowering for them. And in order to be active in a democracy. You have to feel like your voice is being heard. And I think cooking and gardening are such beautiful places to feel empowered because you're able to choose a seed, to plant it, to see it it grow, you feel really like you're connecting to nature deeply, and she is, after all, our mother, and she needs our care, and to learn that very early on in your education gives you a lifetime not only of of beauty (laughs) but a sense of understanding our place on this planet and our connection to everyone else. So for me, it needs to begin at the beginning of education, even way before that. And the idea that we, Industrialized our schools came about that same time that we industrialized our food. that that's only been since the 1950s when fast food came into our world, and we adopted a whole set of values that came with the food. And that is what I wrote a book about, we are what we eat, (laughs) but it's become my deep understanding about the world, that we thought that food should be fast, cheap, and easy, and we thought our lives should be fast, cheap, and easy. (laughs) And Everything should be available to us when we wanted it, 24-7. And we felt like, uh, you know, we wanted what we wanted to eat when we wanted it, and it didn't matter where it came from.
1: I feel, I feel like you're saying it's like we devalued, we, we thought that abundance was the key, but in the process we ended up devaluing all these different
3: important components. Exactly. And speed being critical to the fast food world. The idea of importing food from around the world. I mean, Julia Child and I grew up in a world that only had local food. Maybe we brought in coffee, tea and spices to the United States before the 1950s. But never did we import food, even from other states, except for, you know, maybe at Christmas time, I had a Florida uh, orange in New Jersey, or maybe I had a date from California, but nothing else. It was just food from New Jersey. And People learned how to can that food to keep it. How to eat food differently in the winter time. We had squashes and applesauce. Sadly, my mother wasn't a good cook, but (laughs) we (laughs) did that food. We did, and we never had pesticides in in the food before 1950. It's kind of amazing, I have to say. Uh, You know, you mentioned the Carver Carson Award that I received. And I realized that um, Rachel Carson, it's been 60 years since she talked about the pollution of the soil and the ocean and the sea. And she went to Washington And she spoke to the powers that be, and we got DDT out, but that was it. And we still have pesticides and herbicides in all the industrialized farms. And it's shocking that we could continue to give our, our students and schools Food like this and we know that it's leading to all the diseases
1: yeah i was going to ask you about that because i feel like we are at a moment where people are starting to understand our habits and practices in particular national policy is essentially killing us certainly killing us in adulthood yes. but do, do you think we are making progress or do you think we're actually maybe on a precipice that that realization i mean when you watch television and there's one ad after another, essentially for, <laughs> you know, obesity or diabetes, that that we are on this verge of a major breakthrough, or do you feel like it's still a very big uphill battle?
3: It's a big uphill battle in, nationally uh, because there, I'm not quite sure why because I feel like all of the information is there and available to us to do the right thing. And I know that it's all about money and we have the feeling and the indoctrination from the fast food world that you can't possibly uh, serve kids' organic food in schools, it costs too much. Um, They don't like it. And I know for sure that it does not cost too much. If you don't eat a lot of meat and cheese, it does not. And I've written a book, which will come out in another year, that is about buying all the food uh, retail organic and cooking meals like we do for the Edible Schoolyard Project that kids love, like hummus and pita bread, and fitting into the USDA reimbursement. I know we can do this. And so it should not be about money, but the people who distribute this food are taking a big cut and our farmers need that money to make ends meet. So just imagine the power of procurement for the public school system. What if we bought all the food directly from the local farmers in every state, who took care of the land and their farm workers? I mean, how beautiful that would be. And that is really what I want to demonstrate at this Institute for Edible Education and Regenerative Agriculture at UC Davis. I want to show that this is possible.
1: I I love hearing that because I think, you know, certainly to... To be transparent, that's something you've been criticized for, that organic food is a luxury. But I think what you started talking about (laughs) is that, you know, and especially you combine it with the explanation of Montessori education and people just think it gets very woo-woo. But what you're actually, what you didn't mention is, and some things that I think is a silver lining of the pandemic, is the reason our food, regular food or old-fashioned industrialized food, is so cheap is that it is artificially constructed in the sense that the raw ingredients it's made from are subsidized, and most of the people who grow it, make it, pick it, produce it are underpaid. And so I think part of what you're talking about is a change of the business model so that it is more people and community-centered rather than like shareholder profit-centered. Thank you for
3: summarizing that so beautifully exactly what I'm talking about. But I'm talking really about falling in love the way Juliet Child and I both fell in love with taste. And I'm using that power of nature and brightness and, and beauty to really make this The most positive experience in public schools imaginable. I'm thinking about the conversations at the table that happen when food tastes good and is good for you, and it's a way that that we could, you know, really address the big issues of this world if we engage students at the very beginning of of their lives at school.
1: That's a great segue to what I wanted to ask you is if you would share with us, when you go meet with, if you go over to Martin Luther King School now and, and meet the kids in the program, what do you say to them? What is your message? That, you know the core message that you really want to convey to kids today, you know, particularly because they represent the the future cooks and chefs and eaters of future generations.
3: Well, I'm mostly curious about what they're thinking, how they feel about the program, what they've learned from it, and they are so excited to tell me what organic means. What does it mean to have regenerative food and allow all of the little bugs and and worms, every little creature in the soil. Um, It's what gives taste and nourishment, deep nourishment, the food that they're eating. I mean, they get that. And I, I know because um, they come and apply for jobs at Japanese <laughs> when they graduate, that it's not anything superficial. It's something that is part of their lives and will be always part of their lives. And that is so important to me because they are our future. And I want to give them everything that they need to create a world that is, you know, learning from each other, uh, from every country has something to give and rather than something to take.
1: That is a beautiful vision, especially after this intense summer of natural disasters, but hopefully uh, that sinks up for many people. We're gonna take another break and when we come back, we'll hear Alice's Julia moment. Tickets to the gala presentation of the Julia Child Award to chef Sean Sherman, on October 24, 2023, at the Depot in Minneapolis, will be announced soon. Proceeds from the gala benefit the Smithsonian Food History Project. Make sure you're following the Foundation at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram for all the latest updates. As we cross this milestone 200th episode, we will be moving from weekly drops to shorter flights from time to time. While we may not be in your feed as frequently, make sure to stay subscribed and follow us on social media to be the first to hear about new episodes. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back.
2: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't, Have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen,
1: who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call (laughs) the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite (laughs) Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Alice, you're sounding quite tickled by that. What's your Julia Moment?
3: Just hearing her voice. (laughs) Really excited me. But I have to say, uh, I mean, I have several Julia moments. Probably the first one was when she came to the restaurant in the first two years of Chez Panisse with Marion Cunningham. And I was just (laughs) unable to even go over to the table uh, at that point. But happily, we became friends. But a real moment for me was when she came to cook and film in my kitchen, and I was trying to to think of something that I loved that was easy enough to make, <laughs> and um, and it had uh, olives. Um, I had to put some olives. And she, uh, I mean, it was a little salad I was making with olives and fennel. (laughs) And she said to me, oh, Alice, is that how you get an olive? And she said it with such sincerity that I actually showed her how to pick the olive. (laughs) 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 so embarrassed. <laughs> I bet she loved it. Uh, no, but she said it like, like, like I was really understood something that she didn't know how to do. <laughs> it was so generous, so generous. But that's the way she was. She gave you everything. She gave you everything in her cookbook. She didn't hold back the secrets she gave them to you. And I think that's how she woke up this country to food. And I really feel like I happened to open Chez in the wake of Julia Child. And I don't know whether it would have been the success it has been without her.
1: That's very beautiful.
3: It's true. It's very true. Because she uh, had, you know, the very magnetic personality. and, And also the detail of recipes that empowered people to do it right the very first time. I mean, they were always a little complicated for me to do, but I appreciated every tip of that book.
1: I also think the interesting thing that that I see is this great connection between the two of you and what you did is conviction is that you both just inherently had this view that things need to change, and it didn't matter what anyone else was saying. The conviction <laughs> was so strong that you just went forth and said this is important and 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 I think it's an example of that conviction is a very powerful tool
3: it's true i I've really understood food I think the way she did, but again. She understood food as really part of life, that it was essential, those little cafes by the river in Paris, the way that people ate together their meals. That was very, very important to her, and it is very important to me. The beauty of it, the the way that it it really changed you and empowered you.
1: Well, and I think you're saying, and what you're saying with that old schoolyards and what we we're discussing is that the slowing down is also mm-hmm. important to human existence, not just survival in terms of the climate, but. In terms of the soul and the psyche, and that—that—that's what I feel you're trying to connect up for people, um, which is something most people don't like to spend time thinking about.
3: No, but it's—it's it's true. It is something that profoundly changes your life when you take the time to go to the farmers' market to meet the people who are taking care of your. Health, taking care of the land, you really appreciate their effort and want to pay them the real cost of the food. You don't want to eat anything that is is not considered deeply as nourishing. And I I just Love the world of of people that understand that, and it's why I want to be part of the public school system transformation. I think it needs to be led by the universities and colleges across the country who have the the knowledge, the expertise to make this change. And certainly the University of California has the land, has the, the international reputation and expertise to do this. And then they could make that path for K through 12. But I know that the federal government could do this too, just by insisting that food for schools be organic and reach channels to grow.
1: Well, that is the mission and the challenge. And I think fortunately it feels like there's a growing set of people who are up for it. And uh, we, we, we soldier on with your inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh. Thank you, Todd. Really, it gets me very nervous when I'm talking about you.
1: <laughs> you did it's it very funny. eloquently, and uh, we're we're delighted you. you you could share that 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 full circle and and certainly it reflects uh, so much of the mission that the foundation continues. We are spiritually and intellectually aligned.
3: I'm so glad to support the foundation. I am deeply honor to be part of this
1: well it's an honor to speak with you and to have you on this our 200th episode of the podcast so
3: <laughs> an important one <laughs> exactly
1: a, a, a very big milestone and on that note thanks everyone for listening and if you want as i imagine you will to hear more from alice she's at alice louise waters it's at edible schoolyard and at Chez Panisse, all on instagram i'm t shulkan on instagram Um, Alice didn't mention it, but her memoir is called Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook. That was published by her friends at Clarkson Potter in 2017. I'm going to add on a personal note, if you don't yet own a copy of Alice's The Art of Simple Food, I think it's a must-have for any cook's library. I use it all the time. And her most recent book uh, is We Are What We Eat, A Slow Food Manifesto. You can ask her, search for it at your favorite bookseller. The Julia Child, A Recipe for Life Interactive Exhibition continues at the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation in Dearborn, Michigan. It runs all summer until just after Labor Day. You can join Julia and Paul's meal at La Coronne or step into Julia's shoes behind the camera on the set of The French Chef. For tickets and more information, visit henryford.org and click on Current Events. You can also look for the Carver Carson Society Project that um, honored Alice and is continuing to uh, share in her efforts. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Saltkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi veltorni We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org
3: slash subscribe.